All right, good morning, church. Titus chapter 2 is where we're going to be as we continue our series entitled Brand New. While you're turning there to Titus chapter 2, I I know that many of us will already know and will already have been uh, praying about the tragic incident that took place this week at St. Stephen's Episcopal Church, but let me just encourage us to continue praying for uh, this this community that's been brought to its knees through a a shooting and, and three three deaths there, and this is becoming a a very, very tragic new normal uh, of shootings on a, it seems sometimes almost on a daily basis, you're hearing about some place in the world and some place in our country where mass shootings are taking place, and so let's just ask the Lord that he would give us grace as the people of God to be a light in a very, very dark uh, place. I, uh, I don't have a specific Father's Day message. This, this text is an all skate, so we're all gonna hopefully get something out of it as we look at God's word together, but I, I don't think it excludes application points for, for fathers to take away, so I hope it's an encouragement for all of us as we look at God's word together. All right, I'm gonna read just two verses and then we'll work out from there as we move through the message to see the broader context of Titus chapter two, but I'm just gonna start by reading verse seven and eight, so if you'd look there, and I'll read aloud for us. Titus chapter two, verse seven and eight, the apostle Paul writes these words. In everything, make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. So the heartbeat of this passage is grace changes people. We come to Jesus as we are, but he doesn't leave us as we were. Grace changes people. We are being made holy. We are being sanctified. We are growing in Christ and being transformed more and more as we look at him and as we look at him through the lens of his all-sufficient word. And that's the big idea that Paul is talking about here in Titus chapter two. The the chapter is about embodying the faith, not just knowing it up here, but embodying it, living it out in our everyday lives, living in a manner that accords with or is, is consistent with sound doctrine, consistent with the doctrine we proclaim is the life that we live. So look at the verses that bookend our chapter. Just look at verse one and verse 15. So verse one says this, you are, he's talking to Titus, Titus, you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. And then last verse, verse 15, proclaim these things. So the things that are consistent with sound teaching and then at the end of the passage, proclaim these things, encourage and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. So notice there in verse one, eyes on the text, notice Paul doesn't say proclaim sound teaching. He says, proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. And then in verse two through verse 14, he unpacks what kind of life is consistent with sound teaching. So it is about the manner of living of the church. It is about a kind of living that is is in accordance with the gospel. Then you see at the end of the passage in verse 15, proclaim these things. That is, proclaim this way of life that is held out for Christians to live that accords with the sound doctrine we proclaim. So Paul is writing, to just back up and take in the context, Paul is writing to a church leader named Titus. 
This is listed among the pastoral epistles. So Titus has a kind of pastoral function at the church at Crete. And Paul has left them there in Crete to set things in order, to deal with issues, to pastor and care for the flock. And what you see in this kind of teaching philosophy that Paul is giving to Titus, this church leader, is, is he's advancing a philosophy of teaching ministry that is not academic, it's practical. Titus 2 is eminently, uncomfortably practical. So just look at it with me. So Paul says, Titus, I want you to teach him about several things. A life of self-control in verse 2, 5, 6, and 12. That word self-control shows up four times in our text. Paul will then say, teach them, Titus, I want you to teach Christians how to speak in a way that's different from the culture. Everybody can slander, verse 3, but that's not us. Everybody can talk back to their boss, verse 9, but that's not us. Teach the people, the Christians, how to live and how to speak in a way that accords with sound doctrine. And then he goes on to say in verse 3, teach them about sobriety, as in literally staying sober, not giving yourself to excessive drink. It's, again, extremely practical teaching. And then he says, Titus, I want you to teach, and I want the church members to teach one another, verse 4, how to have a godly marriage, how to love their children and nurture them well. It's, but it's not just you keep reading through it, right? And it just keeps going into ordinary places. It's not just at home, though. It's not just about living out the faith at home. It's about living out the faith at work. And that's what you see in the verses that follow there. And then every verse in this entire passage has and contains important statements about the results of having a life that is consistent with what Christian faith teaches. Verse 10. It talks about the relationship between changed lives and effective witness. So he's saying, if we live this kind of life and if you teach and the church teaches one another into this kind of life that accords with sound teaching, the world that slanders the church is gonna have to lay their megaphones down and say, there's nothing we can say about you except apparently grace changes people. He's saying that's the goal. If we live in this way and we teach toward this kind of life, the world will have to set its megaphone down and say, we got nothing. Apparently, the gospel really does affect transformation in people's lives. And then how does it close? In verse 11 through 14, Paul talks about three great pillars of the gospel, the grace of God, the cross of Christ, and the return of Jesus. And it relates those massive pillars of the Christian gospel, not in a way that's accenting, it's not accenting the grace of God that brings forgiveness. It's accenting the grace of God that teaches you to say no to the world the grace of God that teaches you to, to be a transformed person. It's, it's the grace of God, Jesus comes and dies for us and grace comes into our lives so we have newfound power to display that grace makes a difference. Someone once said, I think it was Robert Coleman, the, the, the author of the great classic Master Plan of Evangelism, who said this, one living sermon is worth a hundred explanations. One living sermon is worth a hundred explanations. I wonder if you've had the, the priceless treasure of seeing someone live the faith in front of you and the impact that makes on your life, the, the credibility that lends to the gospel as you look at somebody, walk it out. If Annalise was sharing that even right here from the waters and she's saying, how did I learn to trust Jesus in challenging times? I watched my parents, that's how. I watched them do it. They commended a way of life by their example. It's sticky 
Example is sticky, right? Years ago, I read an article uh, about Christian mentoring and discipleship, and it told the story of this relationship between an artist that I loved growing up named Michael Card. When I was a kid, Michael Card actually came to the church my dad pastored, Calvary Temple, right there on Pontchartrain Boulevard, and it was like 80 people in the room, and I was geeking out because Michael Card was right there on our little platform in our little building there in New Orleans. And, and so I read this article about Michael Card and how he, he went to Western Kentucky University. And one of the professors, Bible scholar, who's now with the Lord, named William Lane, and Dr. Lane took Card under his wing and discipled him and said, come over to the house, enjoy meals. Here's my wife, you can call her mom, right? There's just this wonderful relationship that he saw, and, and here's how the article describes it. Card speaks about how Dr. Lane never said, here's how I am mentoring you. Instead, he just spent time with Card, talked about life with him, and modeled for him in small ways what he considered to be the marks of a Christian. What Card brings forth is one of the greatest lessons he ever learned from Lane is not a curriculum or a step in a program. Instead, it is the memory of a time when traveling overseas with Lane, when Lane insisted that Card sleep in the only bed available while Lane slept on the floor. And Card says that all he could think about that night is the awkwardness of the fact that he, a college student, was comfortable in bed while a brilliant New Testament scholar was on the floor around the corner. And it hit him that what Lane was doing was teaching his protege the Bible. It goes on, the article goes on to say this. There's so much talk about mentoring today among Christians. Often I find that some expect mentoring to be a clearly defined program with an older believer announcing to a younger believer, you are my protege, today I have mentored you. But as Card points out, that's not the way real Christian discipleship works and never has. The greatest part of mentoring doesn't seem like mentoring at all, just like friendship. Peter, James, and John probably didn't say to themselves while walking to Gethsemane, here we go boys, this is going to be the gospel of Mark chapter 14. They thought it was just a walk. Christian, the people around you in the church don't need a podcast. They don't need a celebrity. They need a living example of the faith. They need someone who will not just teach them the words of faith, but show them how. Show them how to pray. Show them how to speak the truth in love. Show them how to share the hope that they have in Christ. Show them how to suffer hardship without throwing in the towel. They need someone who will show them how. Titus 2 is all about the how. How do Christians live? And he's saying, show them. Titus, it starts with you. Show them how. And then get older believers and younger believers interacting with each other so that everybody's learning how we live a life that is consistent with sound doctrine. I love this passage because it puts ministry within the reach of every person who's been made new in Christ. And we see two pictures of ministry. Number one, words that encourage Words that encourage. Encouragement is all over this passage and the ministry of encouragement in this passage is taken up by the entire body of Christ. The entire congregation is pulled into this ministry of encouragement. But it starts with Titus. So here's the point. Pastors are teaching for a change. Teaching for a change. So bear in mind, verse six, look at verse six. Paul is speaking to pastor Titus and he says, Titus, in the same way, encourage, there's that word, 
parakaleo, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. That word encourage in the original language is sometimes in various places it's translated console or to urge or to invite or to exhort or to comfort. So if you want to be a teacher in the church, Paul is saying, and this is true to today, if you want to be a teacher in this church, these are your marching orders. It's not as though Paul says to Titus, hey, reach into the bag and just see what your spiritual gift mix is, pull something out and, and go with it. Go with your strength. He says, no, you need to be a teacher who encourages people. People need to come away encouraged. That is your next move. Your job isn't merely to help people become knowledgeable of the truth, but to help people become changed by the truth. And that takes inviting and appealing and exhorting and consoling, comforting and encouraging. It's a ministry of encouragement. Matter of fact, in this very same letter earlier in Titus, in chapter one, verse eight, the apostle Paul summarizes his pastoral ministry as a ministry of encouragement. Here's what he says. He's talking about what elders are. What are elders? Titus one, verse eight. They are hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. Paul doesn't just talk about that here in Titus. He talks about that all over the place. He talks about it in Thessalonians where he summarizes his teaching ministry this way. Here's what we did. We encouraged comforted and implored each one of you to live worthy of God. That's a great description, job description of pastoral ministry. Encouraging, comforting and imploring the body of Christ to live worthy of God. There's just a spirit-led mixture of encouragement, comfort and pleading. That's pastoral ministry. In other words, don't, don't miss the point. Pastors aren't teaching to impress they're teaching for a change. They're, they're teaching and modeling the teaching in order to commend a way of life. And it's not just pastors. It's not just Titus. Paul gets the whole church involved. Everybody's on the hook for this. Church members are helping one another live out the faith. And you notice as you just scan down the passage, you can see the terms like older women and older men and younger women and younger men. So you see this interaction between the generations in the church. It's not these generations that are divided and separated from each other to where they don't interact and don't learn from one, one another. Paul wants Titus to make sure older believers are sound in the faith and living godly lives. And the reason is because he wants to put them to work for the good of the body, for the building up of the body. This chapter is full of disciple-making relationships where Christians who have been following Jesus turn around and help other people follow Jesus. People who have walked a little bit further down the road in their experience as followers of Jesus and they turn around and they help other people persevere in the faith and grasp what it means to live as a Christian, to live out their faith in daily life, in practical daily life. You know how you read the New Testament and it's every one of these letters in the New Testament is, is called 
occasional, which is simply a way of just saying that there was an occasion to which the writer was addressing, right? There, there was something going on the writer was aware of, and under divine inspiration, he's saying, this is happening in this unique church. So Corinth had all kinds of stuff going on, right? So it's a big, long letter because it's got to address a ton of issues. Other churches, they don't have exactly the same issues and sins and struggles and challenges. So he writes Colossians to the church at Colossae, and Ephesians to the church at Ephesus, and so forth. And he's addressing in a very occasional, targeted way, what are the things that are going on in that church? In this case, the church that Titus is pastoring is a church in Crete. And apparently, Paul, as he did with others, other letters, he had gotten some uh, intel on what was happening in the church at Crete among different groups of people. So apparently, the young men in Crete struggle with getting their act together. So that explains why Paul talks about the young men the way he does in Titus 2. Apparently, some of the older women had these gossip clubs that were oiled by alcohol. And the more they poured the wine, the juicier the stories got. So that's why he talks in the same moment about don't give yourself to slander and don't pour so much, right? <laughs> don't give yourself to excessive drinking. He's addressing very practical rubber meets the road type of stuff. He says, look, they do that out there in Crete, in the world. Not us, though. That's not how we talk. That's not how we live. So God, why did God put Titus 2 in your Bible? He put this here because he wants to see a church where people are growing, where people are learning, where people are being changed. And you can feel the benefit of this cross-generational ministry that's taking place between the old and the young. Look, in our culture, yeah, we, um, our culture glorifies youthfulness. Hang on to it for dear life. Even when you're out of it, just still try to be as though you're younger than you actually are. That's not what you pick up in the scriptures. The scriptures, they, they certainly celebrate the strength and vigor of the young, but they also, scripture also esteems the wisdom of the aged. Aged just being a fancy word for old. <laughs> scripture upholds that. It says celebrate it. It says be old. Be your old self for the glory of God and let your wisdom start flowing through your mouth for the benefit of the generations coming after you. Brook Hills has what I like to call the gift of gray. We've got the gift of gray. You can look around the room. And sometimes even if it's not gray necessarily because there are other things involved that aren't natural, uh, we've got the gift of gray. We've got the gift of people who have experienced what it looks like to walk with Jesus in the long haul. For the long haul. It, look, if you're, let me just put it very plainly. If you're old, <laughs> your wisdom is needed in this church. Your voice is needed in this church. If you just think, you know, well, what can I do? You know, I roll out of bed and I got a crick in my neck just because of the way I rolled out of the bed. I take 19 supplements before breakfast. Whatever, I, I know people in this city who are church planners who have such young churches. They give anything for somebody who takes 19 supplements before breakfast. They would kill to have you in their church, but they can't have you because you're our old people. <laughs> and we need you doing that thing you do. Being that age you are, we need, right out of college, I, uh, I interned at a church in St. Louis. And everybody in the church, I think, was over 60. And so I was obviously the youngest person there, which for me meant lots of free breakfast. 
during my internship, lots of Denny's free breakfast. I was there almost every day uh, at Denny's with somebody. And I remember breakfast with, I believe it was the oldest man in that congregation. And he had been married for over 50 years. And I sat down with him and, uh, and found out that he had lost his wife recently and he had served in the military. And I asked him every question I could think of. And as soon as I got back to my room, I journaled everything I could remember that he said to me. I asked him about the war. I asked him about, about being faithful in marriage for 50 years. I asked him about suffering. I asked him about the Bible. I asked him about God. I asked him about his prayer life. And if you saw the youngest member of that congregation and the oldest member of that congregation sitting in Denny's that morning, you saw me in the prime of my life and you saw a redwood in God's forest, a mighty oak of the Lord. And when I got back to my room, the closing of my journal entry were these words. There was a light in his eyes and a fervor for Jesus Christ and a love for God's word. I felt so rich. That's what Paul's saying. Titus 2, feel the richness of the body of Christ. Lean into this glorious thing God is doing. Titus 2 is God saying, here's what I want for the Church of Brook Hills. I want a culture of encouragement where that's happening all over the place. Throughout the week, ministry of encouragement from member to member. The word encouragement in this text is parakaleo. That might sound familiar to you because Jesus said, when I go away, I'm gonna send somebody. Who is he gonna send? The paraclete. It's the same Greek words related in the same family of Greek words. In other words, Jesus said, I'm gonna send you the great encourager the consoler, the comforter, he's gonna be sent. I'm gonna pour him out on the church and when the divine encourager comes to church, he's gonna generate ministries of encouragement. He's gonna make Titus 2 happen in the church. And so it's not surprising. Holy Spirit's poured out on the church and we read a New Testament that's full of ministries of encouragement. You read the book of Hebrews. Encourage one another while while it's called today so that nobody would turn back. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse 11. Encourage one another and build each other up. Hebrews chapter 10. Don't neglect to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Some ministries of encouragement all throughout the body. What happens as we step into the ministry of encouragement held before us is we become a church where people are getting stronger. People are strengthened, friendships are deepened, the change is real, we adorn the gospel, we proclaim, by the way, adorning the gospel and adorning the doctrine is language that's used right here in our text and then God gets the glory. So a church made new is marked by words that encourage and second, the second picture is an example that commends. An example that commends. So just notice how much emphasis Paul is placing in this text on the kinds of lives Christians live. Just look down in your text and let these words jump off the page. Just see them there. Self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible, sound in faith, love, and endurance, reverent, not slanderers, not drinking excessively, love husbands and children, self-controlled, pure, hardworking, kind, submissive. It's it's right down in the ordinary, everyday aspects of our lives. And then look at verse five. You're doing all this. You're adorning the gospel by the way you live your life. 
Verse five, so that God's word will not be slandered. Again, the big idea is having been made brand new, our lives say to the world, look at what grace does. Look at what happens when Jesus moves into our lives by his Holy Spirit. It, he changes people. And the motivation for all these exhortations ends up landing in verse 11. Look at verse 11. Follow along as I read it. Verse 11. For all these exhortations are about practical life. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us. So grace is personified as a teacher. And grace is teaching what? It's saying, deny godlessness. That's my lecture for today, Grace says. Deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself, here's atonement, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do what? Good works. That's the message. No, notice how th these gospel pillars are related to practical life. We say through our lives, not just in our doctrine and in our words, but we say through our lives to a lost and broken world, there is a rescue for you if you will trust in Jesus. Everyone who repents and believes, spirit moves in, starts to move furniture around. Spirit moves in, he starts to change us starting on day one, and he never stops. He will complete the work that he has begun in you. It's a promise. Our lives are meant to say to the world, look at what grace does. In other words, you, you look at the, how the cross features in this text. You see there, verse 14, he gave himself for us to redeem us. That, that's the cross. Jesus giving his life for us but what's the purpose? The purpose of the cross in this passage is not forgiveness of sins when we mess up. That's, that certainly looms large in other passages. In this passage, the purpose of the cross is your freedom, is a new you. He gave himself for us to redeem us, not in all lawlessness, from it, to extract you from a life of lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Friends, if you've not put your trust in Jesus Christ and believed a gospel that moves on the inside and begins to change you, do it today. Run to Jesus. Let his spirit begin a new work in your life. And here's a point for us to ponder. Don't separate learning from living. Don't separate learning from living. It's an easy mistake to make. Sometimes the biggest hindrance to the gospel are the lives of the people proclaiming it. And I spent most of this week at the Southern Baptist Convention seeing that very problem. That sometimes the biggest hindrance to the gospel are the lives of the people proclaiming it. There's discontinuity between the sound doctrine and the lives that are supposed to be consistent with the sound doctrine. If you've ever known a Christian who tells everybody at the office about Jesus but gossips about the supervisor or Christian at the office that you hate to open the next morning after they closed because you know you have to get there early because he never does his job. 
He never does the work you're supposed to do when you close out the place the night before. But come, come to lunch and he'll tell you all about Jesus. You can see that disconnect. Paul is riffing on it. He's meddling with that disconnect between the things that we say with our mouths and the way that we live our lives. The great teachers of the church down through the ages, they knew how to employ the device of hyperbole. So hyperbole is when you blow a statement out of proportion because you intend to shock people out of the haze. You intend to shock people out of a deep blindness. Jesus would do this on multiple occasions. For example, when Jesus says, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. He's meddling. He's meddling. When Paul says to Corinth, you're kings and we're the scum of the earth, he's meddling with their definition of what greatness is. When A.W. Tozer says the devil isn't fighting churches, he's joining them. He's not being technical, he's meddling. When Martin Luther says in order to reach the world, the Christian must become profane, he's meddling. He's using the word profane, comes from word meaning outside the temple. Christians must go outside the temple to reach the world, can't reach the world from behind the walls of a monastery. And that's what Martin Luther is saying. You gotta get out in the world where the people are who don't know Jesus and don't serve Jesus. He's trying to shock an audience out of a deep blindness. Here's another one, and it's one that gets a bad rap because we read it technically rather than reading it as something that's intended to meddle. Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. I'm not sure the author of that statement believed that we don't need to use words to share the gospel and evangelize. I think he might have been meddling. He might have been meddling with, a, he might have been being a pot stirrer who's concerned with the fact that there's a whole lot of people talking the talk and not nearly as many people walking the walk. So he unbalances the truth in order to shock people out of nominalism, out of a deep blindness. If you've ever known a Christian who's engaged in all kinds of ministry but fudges on his sales reports, insults his wife, flirts with attractive customers on the sales floor, you know this, it's possible to carry a saving message to the world and yet no one is compelled to believe it because of the way that we're living. Paul is saying, why don't we camp out right there and let's talk about transformation at home, at the office, in your everyday life, in the way you speak, in the way you work, in the way you live. And it becomes a point at which we have missional challenges because our lives aren't credible. They don't adorn the gospel that we proclaim. Quite busy adorning the right gospel, but not, or pre preaching the right gospel, but not adorning it with our lives. Maybe they're not actually, maybe the world that rejects Jesus, they're not actually intending to say no to Jesus. Maybe they're saying no to us, to what they see in us, to the discontinuity, the daylight between what you're saying and what I'm seeing maybe they don't want to go to the heaven that we told them about because they got the impression we'd be there. Maybe Christianity in the Bible Belt needs to be shocked out of a deep blindness, cultural nominalism. This is why the entire letter of Titus is about the Christian life and Paul is saying, Titus, get to work. Don't teach the church smart, teach the church changed. That's where the action is. That's where the magic is. New lives, brand new people. Brook Hills, don't just talk the gospel. Adorn the gospel.
Verse nine, adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. (laughs) In everything. Christian friend, don't underestimate the weight that your life gives to your words, the weight that your humility, your kindness, your candor, your integrity, your compassion, your love gives to your words, your everyday actions, your relationships, that matters. I think it was author Ed Welch who said this, God uses ordinary Christians to do most of the heavy lifting for his kingdom. God uses ordinary Christians to do most of the heavy lifting for his kingdom. I've met a lot of Christians over the years who feel guilty or embarrassed about how ordinary their lives are. And Paul seems to be saying in Titus 2, how about a lot more ordinary Christians who are living it at work and in the home and in their speech? Notice what doesn't feature at all in Paul's philosophy of teaching ministry in Titus chapter 2. Giftedness, talent, communication skills, education and scholarship, platform. In verse 11, the grace of God appears and what happens? Starts barking orders. Grace of God appears and it starts instructing Christians to live. You see those words? In a sensible, righteous and godly way in the present age. Live sensibly for the glory of God. You write a Christian book called Live Sensibly for God and nobody will buy it because it's boring, right? Give me more fireworks, give me more pyrotechnics, give, put on the book, live loud or live big or dream big or set your world on fire or whatever, just bring in metaphors of natural cataclysms, right? You pull that and write that on the cover of the book and everybody's like, oh, I would buy that, I wanna change the world. Those sell like hotcakes, the only people Buying your Live Sensibly book, maybe, are the people who burn themselves out after reading Live Loud and Live Big. <laughs> Titus 2, friends, is a refreshing dose of ministry realism because Titus 2 doesn't play out at the Red Sea parting. Titus 2 plays out at the dinner table. Titus 2 plays out at the office and soccer practice and ballet lessons and a thousand other places you you thought God was too busy to show up. But there he is, ready to work as you embody the faith in ordinary places for the glory of God. I love what the great Scottish preacher, Robert Murray McShane said, it's not great talents that God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. It's not great talents that God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. And I love where this passage ends because it ends with a word of hope. In verse 13, we're living out the faith. You see it? We're living out the faith while we wait for something. What is it? The blessed hope, the return of Jesus. The blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession eager to do good works. You think about the discipleship approach that Jesus took. Jesus' disciples heard the most compelling teaching the world has ever heard, but it was backed up by the most compelling life that was ever lived. And it left a mark. Matter of fact, the apostle Peter would write 35 years later in his letters, and he would say, Jesus left us an example so that we would follow in his steps kind of like what Annalise was saying earlier. You ask the disciples, 
How'd you learn to pray? We watched him. He taught us how. These good works that we're called to do, they're happening in ordinary places. What, what did Jesus say in Matthew 5, 16? Let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Integrity in our daily work. That's here in Titus chapter two. People using words to bestow honor rather than broadcast slander. That's here. A loving marriage. That's here. A home that nurtures children in the Lord. That's here. Embracing a life that's consistent with sound doctrine. That's here. It doesn't sound all that magical, but think about the alternative. When the world looks at Christians and sees Christian men and women trashing their spouses, Christians without self-control, Christians controlled by worldly lust, seizing power the world's way, then you realize this is where the magic is. You realize embodying the faith is powerful after all. Grace changing people is powerful after all. This passage is here to urge us believers to invite God to do that thing he's been doing in his church for 2,000 years. Invite him to come in and do his transforming work by his word and spirit. And then to help and urge others forward in the experience of it. That's mentoring. That's discipleship culture. That's ministries of encouragement trickling through the entire life of the body all week long. That's what we're called to. And we'll be stronger because of it.